Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Well, it's uh, six months now since the new prosecutor, Kareem Khan, was elected, and we're just about to head into the annual meeting of states' parties to the International Criminal Court, which is happening here in The Hague. So, thought it might be a good idea to look at what's been going on. Yeah, we have a lot to get through. The former prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, left a ton on his plate, including new investigations with no funding like Ukraine and Nigeria, plus lots of preliminary examinations, some of which have been going on for decades. Yeah, let's uh, take some of this uh, bit by bit. I'm sure that we'll end up talking about Afghanistan. So we might as well start with Afghanistan. Um, it really feels like the defining moment of his uh, work so far. Uh, do you want to summarize some of the backstory on Afghanistan and the ICC? Yes, it's one of the most controversial decisions Khan has taken in the first uh, few months he's been on the helm. Of course, uh, Afghanistan was a long-running preliminary investigation that Ben Souda uh, turned into an investigation after initially judges rejected that and then agreed. And that earned uh, the ICC sanctions against the prosecutor. In that case, it was Fatou Bensouda, but they were turned back um, when the new uh, U.S. president came in. Um, so uh, the ICC prosecutor and Khan could get started with investigations, but there was still a decision pending on uh, Afghan authorities asking for a deferral and prosecution was looking into it. And um, you said it was a really controversial decision by Khan. What, what was the decision that he's made on this particular situation? Let's parse it up in little pieces. First of all, he decided that he didn't want or he couldn't yet grant the deferral request. And so he asked it, he asked judges if he would be allowed to continue the investigation into Afghanistan. But there, very controversially, he said in a press release accompanying this request that he decided to focus his office investigation, quote, on crimes allegedly committed by the Taliban and the Islamic State Khorasan province, known as the ISK, and to deprioritize other aspects of this investigation, end quote, which basically means that he is looking into the Taliban and ISIS-K and Islamic State crimes, but the crimes that are the most kind of controversial uh, in this are uh, alleged crimes by U.S. forces and the CIA and rendition and black sites and all those things that we talked about in earlier podcasts, they would then be deprioritized. And we've had lots of different reactions, some of whom I must say have said, OK, we, we understand why, but from a lot of NGOs who were uh, involved as victims' representatives, we're very unhappy with this. I know that we've got a lot uh, to say on this, so um, let's kind of pause and come back to it later. I thought it might be a good idea to put that move into context by looking at some of the other developments that we've seen in the prosecutor's office. So let's start with uh, Venezuela and Colombia. Yes, and we can take a look at the trip that Khan took to South America. And his first thing there was that he stopped one of the longest running preliminary examinations into Colombia that the ICC did. Uh, he stopped it and praised their local system. And at the same time in that trip, he went to Venezuela and uh, announced that the ICC was opening the investigation from the preliminary examination there. 
And I know there's a lot to say about what's been going on in the ground in Venezuela, but I just wanted to focus on the little bit that he said, that he said that he had an agreement with the Venezuelan authorities, and that's been made public. And I'm wondering for myself what kind of message that is sending, not just to Venezuela, but more generally. So I asked uh, Triestino Marinello of Liverpool's John Moores University about that agreement. He thinks that it's very much in line with the prosecutor's approach and what he laid out before he actually got elected to states. And it's his line that it's really up to the states to prosecute. It's their role. And this is called positive complementarity. I think that uh, in, as a matter of principle, in theory, uh, it is in line with the emphasis that the prosecutor has placed so far on positive complementarity at the ICC. I think even in interview with your podcast, he placed emphasis a few months ago on the importance of positive complementarity. I went through it for a report at the European Parliament. And so I think that this is in line, I mean, with what he has been arguing even before starting in his, uh, his mandate at the ICC. But even though that is in line with what Khan has previously said, that he thinks that states have the main role to play in taking on prosecutions, Triestino says that this particular agreement is rather unusual. I don't think the memorandum of sending has a legal value. So what does he actually mean by that? Well, I'm going to summarise and in very non-legal language, so apologies for my lack of precision for the lawyers out there. He says that there's really no basis for the prosecution to have an agreement like this because the prosecutor is not the court. And more than that, he says that the language of this memorandum of understanding the agreement is actually less strong than the Rome Statute. And it actually undermines the obligations that states have. It uh, entails more risks than benefits. I would be also, it's not neutral, it's not just redundant, it's detrimental to the Rome Statute itself, so to the legal framework created by the Rome Statute. Well, I'd love to hear from Asymmetrical Haircuts listeners here on what they think. I haven't actually seen an analysis of this Venezuela MOU from a legal point of view. I did one already from a kind of political point of view, but you know, please let me know, let us know if um, we've missed it. Um, Also, on Venezuela, I was discussing with Triestino about this being a really fast decision by comparison with some of the situations that have stayed in primary examination for a long time. So what makes a prosecutor open an investigation? Do they use an investigation to kind of ratchet up the pressure on the states to, to tell them that they really need to do their own prosecutions? And he compared this decision to the preliminary examination into uh, alleged crimes by UK forces in Iraq, where the prosecutor never opened an investigation. She never apparently used that as a pressure point. But finally, uh, the prosecutor, who was then Fatou Bensouda, she decided she just didn't have enough to go forward. So she, she was never kind of She was never at that point, never used it as a way of pushing it forward. And he says in this situation, he thinks Khan is actually using the investigation as a pressure point on the Venezuelan authorities. So maybe that shows in this case, there is a lot of evidence already in the office of the prosecution uh, in the ICC, sort of ready to actually start some cases. 
But uh, looking at the evolution of the situation and also on the preliminary report of the previous prosecutor, I think it's very likely that uh, he will bring the cases without forgetting. Of course, that's not binding for the prosecutor. But if the prosecutor is opening an investigation, he has already assessed that potential cases are admissible under Article 53.1b of the Rome Statute. And so if they are admissible, it means that there are not effective justice systems put in place in relation to the same conduct and the same individuals. So I think that uh, maybe, well, I'm not sure if a way to reassure the states or to send a message to the states who have made the referral here, to be honest, or maybe to all of them, you know? But this is a political issue. And of course, for me, it's very difficult to comment to comment on this. What I would say, if I can make really a speculation or a prognosis, is that it's very likely that he will bring cases on the basis of how he's been dealing and also how fast he has been dealing with the situation. It's very interesting what he says there. I spoke to somebody on background about Khan's first six months, and he kind of suggested that uh, it looks odd, this memorandum of understanding and the optics are are questionable because he announced it with Maduro in a press conference and he didn't really frame it himself, the prosecutor's office, but that essentially, yeah, he was using the Venezuelan authorities maybe to get more than he could without them. And this was maybe a very pragmatic approach uh, by the prosecutor. So uh, maybe maybe that will play out. Um, now let's turn to some of the other issues the prosecutor is facing and it's difficult uh, because there's lots and lots, uh, but one springs to mind, and that is the Philippines. Is it okay if we say that now, Janet? I, I think that we've got to pick and choose, so you go ahead on Philippines. Uh, well, what happened in the Philippines is that on the 18th of November, uh, Khan notified the trial chamber that he was temporarily suspending the investigation because the Philippines government has asked for a deferral. And that's a bit of a surprise in a sense because it meant that the Philippine government, who, uh, as we may all remember, had left the ICC last year, is now suddenly engaging with the ICC and sending this request for deferral, which is a de facto recognition possibly of the ICC jurisdiction, even though the government keeps maintaining that the ICC has zero jurisdiction. So uh, he, as per the statute, as Khan said later, he is obliged to suspend an investigation when a deferral request is made, uh, but he is asking the Philippines for more detail so he can say exactly why they want to be, why they want, what they are investigating themselves, which would be the reason for deferral. I have the feeling that we could um, pick up every single set of cases, uh, set of situations in preliminary examination, even the ones that have already been in investigation, and we could find a lot of detail there. But um, I thought maybe the other big one or big set of situations we should look at uh, to understand Khan's approach is how he's looking particularly at the situations that the United Nations Security Council has referred to the court. And that's because he actually spoke to the Security Council for the first time as prosecutor last week in the Libya case. So we get some insights from that. Let's just mention Sudan Darfur, because that's also a Security Council referral Steph, quick reminder about who, when, what, where. I mean, I doubt whether you can be quick, but up to you. Uh, well, I'm going to be very quick because I'm going to not be very detailed. Um, 
for years and years, the ICC had an investigation into Darfur, but the Sudanese government under uh, President uh, Bashir wouldn't cooperate. Then Bashir was overthrown. The new government uh, looked like it was playing ball uh, with Ben Souda at the time. Uh, she visited and uh, they made agreements. And Khan also visited Sudan as his first visit as an ICC prosecutor, talked about looking working with the authorities. But then... Uh, boom, we have another coup in Sudan. It's very unclear who is now exactly in the government and what their stance is. Are there former allies of Bashir? It seems to have gone a little more back to the Bashir regime people, but not quite. So actually, we don't know at this moment uh, what all these agreements and what all these deals and all the people the, the prosecutor spoke to actually mean uh, for this case now with another possible regime change. So we're basically waiting to see what the Sudanese authorities will do, which is a bit complicated because actually maybe some of them are kind of implicated because they're part of the Bashir time. They're former uh, Bashir ministers, uh, but when I looked into it for Reuters to see if there was anybody in the new government that was on the list of the ICC, I couldn't find anybody because they are all like former ministers for education and those kinds of people, while the ICC obviously is focusing on like defense ministry and minister of the interior. So nobody directly implicated, it seems, but obviously uh, part of the Bashir regime um, doesn't bode very well for the direction they're going. But there is other things as well, uh, like you talked about, where we have to look at what Khan is going to do in Libya. Okay, so let's uh, hear the new prosecutor addressing the United Nations Security Council for the first time. Um, He sounds exactly like a British barrister, um, the way that he does it. And this was the six monthly report that he has to make. Uh, The plight of women and children and men is something that requires greater action. This requires new focus from my office. I I accept that. An acceleration, a more demonstrable utility of the office of the prosecutor, but it also does require, with the greatest of respect, more engagement and more support from this august body that referred the matter to the office of the prosecutor in the first place. So that's Khan basically telling the Security Council in incredibly kind of British understated English that you need to pay for this investigation, otherwise he can't actually get going. And he's really going hard on getting funds from other places, getting support and finding new ways of working to increase the court's impact. Now, to understand some of the background to this approach, I turn to Chantal Maloney. Her involvement here is that the NGO that she works with, the EWCHR, has brought out a new report on Libya last week, timed to to go with this um, address to the Security Council. And it's all about crimes against humanity being committed there. And the reporter was together with FIDH and Lawyers for Justice in Libya. And the crimes that this is focused on is human trafficking. It's about the hundreds of migrants, particularly from Africa, from the Middle East, who are trying to get across the Mediterranean to Europe. Yes, the ICC has been uh, kind of saying for the Libya investigation uh, that they're going to focus on migrants for a long time, but we haven't really seen anything concrete of that. Um, We'll obviously put a link to the report that we mentioned here uh, from the ECCHR uh, in the show notes on the website. 
Yeah, and along with that public report, they've actually submitted evidence to the prosecutor saying that this human trafficking is closely linked to the civil conflict in Libya and therefore is part of the ICC mandate. The things are connected. Uh, it, it is very clear. We have uh, many, many pages of background uh, uh, that explain how and why the dynamics regarding these exploitation of migrants are strictly related to the development of the conflict uh, and how the two things uh, reinforce each other because the migrants exploitation is also a profit, uh, a way of making profit uh, for those who fight uh, the conflict in Libya. So on, on the skin of human beings, uh, uh, there is uh, profit uh, that is made uh, through even the most horrible, uh, the most horrible practices. Like uh, we are talking about uh, uh, selling people uh, uh, as slaves. Uh, like we are talking about, uh, yeah, practices that remind us of slavery, and uh, people are making money out of these, and this money fuels uh, the conflict. Now. Obviously, we don't know what the prosecutor will pick up from the evidence. Um, He did mention human trafficking in his uh, address to the Security Council. And as you say, Stephanie Fatou Bensouda, his predecessor, had said that the ICC would be looking into it. But I wondered when I was chatting to Chantal whether giving this kind of evidence and trying to push the prosecutor in particular directions is just, again, NGO victims reps, you know, this constant saying, hey, hey, look at this, look at this, here's another priority, here's some new evidence that you should consider. Yeah, I, I really thought uh, very seriously about this, uh, because I think also the role we have as uh, NGOs uh, and as a representative of victims uh, is of course uh, an important one and we need to to be also not only idealistic in what we ask but also i think we need to take into consideration practical issues and and this is why i think our communication in this case uh, is not adding uh, more work uh, on the agenda of the prosecutor is just uh, reinforcing what he already has on his table. And uh, this is exactly why I think it should be prioritized. Exactly what he said to the UN Security Council is the important uh, element. Uh, We are talking about a situation referred to the Security Council, which the prosecutor himself says, affirms uh, clearly, has to have priority. The Peace and security of Libya is a priority still for the Security Council. The situation of this exploitation and uh, abuse and criminal networks around the migrants is fueling the conflict, is part of this conflict. It is one of the ways through which people there make money that goes into the conflict. So it's linked they need to see it as a priority. And we are not talking about anything new. So I agree. The, uh, and I think it's smart uh, uh, that this prosecutor will uh, try to maybe te- take a little bit less on his table, but do it effectively. And I can only praise him for being uh, clear in this regard. 
Now, what was also interesting in his report to the Security Council was the prosecutor talking about his new ways of working. And he mentioned, for example, a joint team between Europol, Italy, the UK and the Dutch to, quote, combine efforts to share knowledge and to try to move things forward, unquote, I think particularly to do with human trafficking. And he used the occasion to also say that he has a different way of approaching success for the court's work. We need to redefine success for the court. Success does not simply mean the numbers of trials or the number of proceedings in The Hague. Success means narrowing accountability, supporting national authorities, looking at imaginative ways in which we work together, not separately and divided, but in a united manner. So that's some of my parsing of the current tea leaves um, together with you, Stephanie. Now that we're looking ahead to this new prosecutor attending his first Assembly of States parties, but I know that we haven't actually finished with Afghanistan. We've only kind of mentioned that, that people have been upset by the decision. That decision to deprioritise the US side of the investigation really, to me, seems like the most important decision that he's he's made. So I also asked my two commentators, Chantal and Triestino, to tell me what they're thinking. From Chantal, I asked, is this really a big shift from the previous prosecutor? And Triestino, I wanted to understand whether he thought this was being done in the right way. I personally have criticism about... Uh... The, the first decisions he made, for instance, with regard to the investigation in Afghanistan, I think the way he decided to, let's say, deprioritize, as he said, other actors, uh, meaning not the Taliban's, uh, so meaning the Afghan government, uh, alleged crimes and the CIA, uh, alleged crimes in Afghanistan was, in my view, not the best way uh, to do it because uh, the words he used, the way he justified it was not based on uh, legal criteria. It was based on um, a sort of, uh, yeah, realpolitik. And it sends very dangerous messages because again, the fact that someone is not cooperating with the court like the US, of course, will never, doesn't mean that these crimes are less grave. And also, I don't think it's true that he didn't have already, he already had a lot, because of course, many years of investigation and these crimes are very well documented. So he could have, he could have kept that. And I think that was a very big, yeah, I mean, mistake, I would say, uh, to communicate something in that way at the very beginning of his mandate. For sure, there is a paradigm shift compared to at least the second part of uh, Ben Suda mandate here on different levels. In relation to the communication, of course, I'm not a communication expert, but I think that for um, it stems so far in these very few months that he's taking if I can put this very softly, he's standing close by states. This will be his mandate in these nine, nine years. And uh, this is what we have seen going back, to be honest, from Afghanistan decision, Colombia, 
and uh, well, Colombia is even more clear than Venezuela, I guess, and also in uh, Venezuela, being close standby means, I mean, taking the side of states, which uh, on the same time, which is not problematic itself, it becomes problematic when I have seen in these few months a dangerous uh, uh, stigmatization of civil society, and this is also a difference compared to maybe uh, Ben Suda, and the approach she had in relation to civil society, legal representative of victims, non-governmental organization dealing with the court. For sure, there is already a, a paradigm shift in relation to this, on choosing to maybe, I don't know, it's just my, it's very early to comment on this, but uh, I mean, when I say stigmatization of civil society, I see that, for instance, the example of Afghanistan and victims not informing the legal representative of victims of the decision to just not continue with the investigation against uh, US crime. So in this big arena, I can see also in relation to the communication approach, the more or less the clear decision, I mean, among civil society and states to choose a site on which to be. Maybe, of course, it's just very early speculation, but I mean, I, 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 I try to read what's happening, to interpret what's happening, and this is my impression at the moment. So, Steph, having heard all of that, what kind of thoughts do you have at the moment? I mean, Triestina was very careful to say it's a bit early in time. I mean, only six months in to make an analysis. It's just kind of impressions that we have at the moment at the way that that Khan is going. What are you thinking? Um, I think it's obvious that Khan is doing uh, a lot of things where he's directly looking at states and looking at the cooperation they are giving so that he can strengthen his cases because what we've seen in practice at the ICC is that cases that have this cooperation and where the court can investigate with the help of the authorities are the ones that get won and the ones that where they have the authorities not cooperating are very difficult to prove. But the optics uh, of this are not very good. Um, it just looks like Khan is kind of going with one side of a conflict. Um, and I'm not saying he is or that he's not an, uh, a very impartial prosecutor, but the way you can make it look is not very good for the ICC. Yeah, we've had some evidence on that, though, haven't we? I mean, the way that it looks, haven't judges already wrapped him over the knuckles? Uh, yes, I thought that was very interesting. There was a little, um, there was a kind of a partial decision on representatives of victims and if they could file something, yes or no. And in that uh, little um, court document, the judges got, gave Khan a bit of a slap on the wrist where they said, well, you know, obviously we, we, we as judges have no influence over the investigations you do, but it seems odd that you would uh, dismiss one group of potential perpetrators before even doing the investigation. So this is all very couched in much more uh, legal language, but it basically is saying, Oi, what are you doing? Um, it looks bad if you dismiss something outright without uh, having, the, uh, having done the actual investigation. And they actually used the term, didn't they, um, that he had to have, his office needed to have both the appearance of impartiality um, and not just be impartial, but it needed, I mean, essentially to communicate how impartial he was being. 
Yes, I think what what our my my mystery commentator on on Khan's first couple of months said, you know, the communication uh, seems to be all over the place, and that's also even to the judges. Uh, this uh, fact that they feel that they want to put this out is says something about what Khan is doing and how it's perceived. Um, I also asked uh, my uh, mystery commentator uh, if this would be a problem for Khan at the ASP. But uh, they said, well, no, because he's basically doing what states want. He's connecting with states. He's talking to states. He's in in a way giving them a bigger role possibly than than Ben Suda was, who was very victim-oriented. And I don't want to suggest in any way that Khan is not trying to do all this for the victims and that he actually wants justice, but he is also being extremely uh, diplomatic and negotiating with states and trying to uh, organize something that works within the parameters he has, uh, which means that uh, essentially you need state cooperation to get anywhere. And I think he realizes that. uh, And I think it's probably good that he does that. So he gets more cases or more cases that can be proven in court. But um, it leaves the court open to uh, a lot of criticism. And and I wonder how he's going to navigate that. Let's see. And um, I'm sure we'll have more to talk about after the Assembly of States parties, where we've got two deputy prosecutors being elected and also the regular business of the budget and um, whether states really do approve of the direction that the court is taking and whether they have the money to support that. So let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast hosted by me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. You can find out all about the show and why we interview women experts on our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com. Where you'll also find all the ways to subscribe and don't miss an episode. Do that. You can follow us on Twitter as well at Asymmetrical H. This show was brought to you in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe and enjoy your day.